I, I was I was talking to my uncle about today's sermon, as many of you may have been talking to your uncles this week, uh, and and I asked him if he had any ideas for a post Christmas sermon, and he, he said you you could always go with wise men still seek him, you know, sermon on the wise men, which is true, great classic post Christmas sermon, and uh, then he said you you know the wise men were firefighters. I said, no, I, I didn't know that. Biblically? That, and he said, yeah. He said, uh, they came from afar. <laughs> okay, yeah. <He's, laughs> I'd never heard that before, so uh, I shared that with you today. Hopefully you enjoy that. If you're not from the South, it's amazing how similarly we say fire, um, like something is burning, and far, like a long, long way to go. Uh, but today, today we're not actually looking at the wise men. Uh, instead, we're looking at a couple of, of prophets. And uh, actually, in the storyline of Jesus' life, we have evidence that um, wh- who we're going to meet today, Anna and Simeon, did come before the wise men in the storyline. Uh, so they don't get as much play as the wise men with their fancy gifts, but Simeon and Anna played a unique and beautiful role in the Chris- Christmas story. So if you're in Luke 2, we're going to see the main idea today, starting in verse 20, is that we can be certain that Jesus is the Messiah. We can be certain Jesus is the Messiah. It's hard to be certain about many things. If you're like me, I'm an overthinker. I can make a decision and make it five times and never be certain about which answer. But here we can be certain that Jesus is the Messiah. But what is a Messiah? I mean, that's a word maybe sometimes we use in church that we never define. So what is a Messiah? Well, the Messiah means chosen one. It hints that there's a single, foreknown, preplanned Savior to free his people. The coming of the Messiah was a coming of a rescuer. And the Israelites had long awaited the arrival of a rescuer, of a Messiah, a chosen king who had the power and authority to pull them out of their oppression. So would you look with me in Luke chapter 2? We're going to start in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So even right here, we see uh, right off the bat this idea of redeeming the firstborn. This is already, in verse 22, connected to the law of Moses. That in the law of Moses, the firstborn needed to be redeemed. That there had to be a a sacrifice given. But not only that, there had to be a purification time. So the mother and child had uh, had to be apart from the people for a certain number of days. And then they could be brought to the temple to be purified and then to be given an an offering for. But, so here, Jesus is already in Luke 2 submitting himself under the law. Like, you're like, well, how much does a baby submit himself <laughs> under the law? Like, how much choice does Jesus have here? Well, I, I want to I continue to point out that Jesus isn't handcuffed by this law, that Jesus isn't subservient to the law. He doesn't serve the law. The law serves him. He's not handcuffed to these Old Testament laws. Jesus, in fact, predates all these laws He is the giver of these laws. He is completely above them and unbound by them. And yet, he is subjecting himself to them. Not passively. He's not 
passively subjected to these laws, but, but in his desire, within his will, he is subjecting himself to these laws. Even as these laws were given to Moses, Jesus knew he would someday be underneath them as an infant. It's an incredible thing to think about. That Had, had Jesus desired not to be under these laws, he could have not given them. <laughs> had Jesus desired not to be under these laws, he could have come not as a baby. But instead, he, he did. This is exactly his plan. And in these first public actions, Jesus is already proclaiming his message that he is a savior from the law. I mean, his parents came offering pigeons to redeem his life. Moses said that Jews should offer lambs or pigeons. If the, if the cost of a lamb was too high, then they could offer these other options. So here we have some evidence of Joseph and Mary's meager financial means. But what they were giving for him was a, a, a guilt offering. It was one of, of redemption. They were redeeming this firstborn because it is written in the law, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. They were to be devoted to the Lord. So the sacrifice was to redeem him, to give something in his place. This perfect law giver and perfect law keeper came to save the law breakers. When we sin, we reject God and bring death upon ourselves. When we break the law. So Jesus here is satisfying the law already, even as a baby. He's doing exactly what is needed. But even before even before this law-keeping of being presented and having pigeons given in his place, even before that, Jesus is setting the example of his perfection. I mean, we are, we are sinners by our actions. I think we can all go around the room and agree that there are things that we've done that even in our hearts we know is not up to a standard of perfection. But, but deeper than that, we, we're all born into our sin. David teaches us that in the Psalms. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that we're all in sin. But Jesus, born of a virgin, was born without sin. So even before this moment of law-keeping, Jesus was already perfect. He wasn't becoming perfect. He started at perfect. His miraculous birth brought him into perfection in a way that none of us could be. He was born without sin, and he lived without sin so that he could be in the place of those who are full of sin. Already in chapter 2, we're seeing this good rescuer, this good redeemer, setting himself in our place. So he came, he needed, he needed to follow the law, he did follow the law, and we meet him as he's following the law. We meet a man named Simeon. Look in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what has said, was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The first thing we see in this main idea of being sure of being certain that Jesus is the Messiah is that we have confirmation by a spirit-filled prophet. But already he's perfect, already he's fulfilling the law, but then we see this confirmation by a spirit-filled prophet, Simeon. Who was this man, Simeon? He was, he's a man of faith. That's, that's who he was. His righteousness and devotion, as you see already in verses 25, his, he was a righteous man and devout. And what was that based upon? What was attached to his waiting, to his faith? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the Savior to come. And in that, he was being righteous and devout. This man of faith, filled with the Spirit, says, My eyes have seen your salvation, Lord. I love that his faith is an expectant faith. And isn't that expectant faith, isn't that really what faith is? Can you really have faith if you're not expectant? <laughs> like it's not really faith if you're not expecting what it is that you're having faith in, what you're hopeful for. And here this expectant faith is the condition of being filled with the Spirit. That the Spirit was on him, that he was filled with the Spirit in this faith. But isn't that true of us too? Shouldn't that be true of us today as well? That we would be like Simeon, people of faith, expectant, expectant, that, believing, hopeful that our Savior is going to be and do who he says he is and does. How we pray, how we live, shouldn't it be expectantly? I mean, today we're a lot like Simeon. We are in the group waiting on the coming again of our Savior. Simeon was, was an oddball to some degree. Yes, everyone was waiting on the Savior, but you find out when, when, the, when the metal meets together, there, there were some who didn't want the Savior to come. They weren't really expecting this Savior. So we, we ourselves are in this odd group waiting for a Savior to return, Christian. We're, we're like Simeon in, in that sense. We believe he could come in our lifetime. So we are expectant. Simeon was specifically told by God that he would see Jesus in his lifetime. There's something sweet about Simeon's first words in verse 29. Look at, look at verse 29. As Simeon, this man of faith, expectantly waiting on Jesus, says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He had done what the Lord had asked. He had been the faithful servant. He had been faithful and God proved to be faithful as well. Isn't that sweet, that moment? Can you imagine that moment of reality, that the hope became real, that the faith became present? There was no more wondering. There was no more just expectancy. There it was. 
your salvation. I can see it. I can see him, your salvation. Simeon was satisfied with the fulfilled word. It's almost thinking of Simeon as a servant tasked with staying up all night to look for a light in the sky. I don't know if any of you have ever watched Lord of the Rings but or The Hobbit, but in, in some of those, it's really just historical. I mean, we, we did it in the real world, is you would have people who would light fires and towers, and you could see them from mountaintops in the distance, and it would be a way that you could communicate a message. And you can imagine a servant being sent up to the top of one of those towers and saying, look for the fire in a distant tower. Keep an eye out to the, to the west. Keep an eye out. When that... When that tower is set on fire, then come report. Let us know. You can imagine a man waiting through the night, keeping his eyes open. I know some of you work through the night, so this isn't as hard for you maybe as, as others. But if you've ever tried to stay up all night, you can know the battle of keeping your eyelids open, right? And Jesus experienced that with his disciples in the garden. He said, stay awake and pray. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't stay awake. Well, here's Simeon in the night looking for a light. And the light finally flickers on. It's the fire in the far tower. And he's like, finally, I can rest. Finally, I've seen what was given to me as my task. So he can, he can come down off of that tower. He can rest. Here's what's happening for Simeon. It's the same thing. And, and that light that appeared, this light that appeared now that he's exhausted by this long task, is Jesus which is confirmed in Isaiah 9 too, right? It's, it's, a, it's a good picture. Isaiah 9 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Isn't, this, isn't Jesus this beautiful light that Simeon has been looking for? And now he says, Now you're letting your servant depart in peace. It's like, thank you, God. Thank you for letting me do my task and now depart in peace. Jesus is the light, a salvation for all people. Simeon continues this, basically a psalm here in verses 29 through 32. He continues to point out that this is, this is salvation for all people. That he, Simeon now has seen the salvation that he's prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. So this Savior is not just coming for the Jews. He is coming for the entire world. And it's a beautiful fulfillment of the promise that the Father made to Abraham. Here is the promise fulfilled in the flesh that all nations would be blessed through his offspring. Here is the blessing. <laughs> Here he is. Jesus in the flesh, the Savior in the flesh, the Messiah in the flesh. And the text takes us back to Mary and Joseph. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. I read several commentators who mentioned that you know, maybe Mary and Joseph didn't know the depths of what, G what had been prophesied about Jesus. Because at this point, you know, Mary and Joseph have both had angels come to them and tell them what's going to happen. They've had shepherds show up at their doorstep and say, we've had angels tell us what's going to happen. And now they have a guy telling, telling them, hey, here's what's going to happen. They're like, well, maybe they just didn't know the depths. Well, maybe they didn't know the depths. Or maybe it's just one of those things where, isn't it beautiful when you see your kids do things? I mean, I get excited about my kids taking, like, steps, their first steps. 
But here you're finding out that your kid is going to save the world. How many, how, when does that become old? <laughs> like, when do Mary and Joseph get tired of hearing that? When are they not amazed? When do they not marvel at what is holding in their hands? As, even as we're sitting here with Carter, to think that Carter is going to grow up to be a man who does amazing things. It, it's hard to even understand. If I, could, if I could give you a picture of his life, you would marvel at it. And when would it get old? I can't imagine it getting old for Joseph and Mary. Simeon blessed them as parents. He knew their task would not be easy. He knew they had a weighty task before them. And he said this to his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This is verse 34 in Luke 2. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's kind of the first sad part of the Christmas story, right? Like, we don't normally read this phrase as we're reading through the Christmas story, right? It's, it's light and life to all he brings. I mean, it's joy to the world. But here, it's appointed that he, he, there will be fall and rising of many in Israel because of him. For a sign that is opposed, a sword piercing through your own soul, this doesn't feel Christmassy. <laughs> this is what we want for Christmas. But it, but it is. But it is. Because as Jesus is the cornerstone, as he is the rock, there will be some who in their pride will meet that rock and they will fall. They cannot stand up against the goodness of God in their pride and in their arrogance. But those who are humble will bow before him. And we know from Scripture that it is in pride that God, I mean, it is in humility that God exalts. It is in service that God exalts. So there will be a rising and a falling of many in Israel. And that is good news for the humble. That is good news for the meek. That is good news for those who have a need and who are sick. Because Jesus didn't come for the healthy, those who didn't need a doctor. He came for the sick, those who needed a doctor. So it is in our humility that this verse is a beautiful Christmas verse to us. Yeah, he, he came so that we could rise with him. But here, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Isn't this a prophecy of Mary before the cross, seeing her son suffer? It's hard to imagine that Mary could have grasped the, the fullness of that in that moment. But Mary would have her heart also pierced, her soul also pierced as she watched her son die on the cross. It would be suffering for her. We know that Jesus is the man of suffering, but his suffering isn't limited to him. It's limited to those who love him. There will be suffering for all those who love Christ. I mean, his mother was no exception. But if Jesus suffers, if his mother suffers, Shouldn't that be the expectation in our lives as well? As we love and follow after Christ, that our lives are not just always the nostalgic memories on Christmas Day, but that's also the really difficult parts too. That we suffer as we follow after Christ, not in, not in um, sadness, but in a goodness that we are following in the steps of our Savior. 
this suffering is not for nothing. Look at that, the last phrase of verse 35. All of this, that the rising and the falling, the sign that is opposed, the sword that is piercing through Mary's own soul, it is so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Because ultimately, Jesus is the great deciding, deciding line of who a person is. The ultimate dividing line of a person is Jesus. What you believe about Jesus is the final measure of a person. Ultimately, in the end, it won't matter what you picked out to wear today to church. <laughs> it won't matter how good your gift giving was over the last week and maybe even over the next coming week. It won't matter how good your works are. It'll matter what you believe about Jesus. That's why Jesus came, that the, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed, that the truth of who our Savior is would be revealed. Who is your Savior, church? If you're sitting here today, the question for you is, who is your Savior? Because the world elevates many saviors. I think money is an easy savior. Family is an easy savior. We live in a world where you might have a conversation with someone and they're like, but someone's offering Muhammad as a savior. Someone's offering this other religion as a savior. There's one true Savior. What, what are the thoughts of your heart about that one true Savior? Is the thought of your heart about Jesus that, yeah, he's just one way. It's fine. I'm glad I chose him because it works in our culture. There's a thought about Jesus that he's worth everything in your life. He's worth surrendering everything to follow after. Think about the challenge to the rich young ruler. The challenge to the rich young ruler wasn't just that you had to be impoverished to follow after Jesus. You had, be, you had to be willing to give everything in following after him. The thoughts of his heart were revealed that he wasn't ready to follow after Christ. Simeon prophesies that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon had God's word. We, we know that from this text, that the Holy Spirit revealed this to him, this prophecy to him. Simeon had God's word. The Spirit revealed the coming of Christ to him. In church, we, we also have God's word. So if we get back to that main idea, this, this main reason for, for what we're learning in this text is that we can be certain that Jesus is the Messiah. We can be just as certain as Simeon was standing in that moment because we also have the word of God proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah to us. So what are the thoughts of your heart? And where do you rest those thoughts? Well, you can be certain because we have the truth of God's word before us. You can be certain that Jesus is the one true Messiah because... It says it right here, that the one true word of God says that Jesus is the Messiah. Not through new revelations, not through elegant rationality, but because of the revelation that God has given to us in his word. It's sufficient. It's enough. Keep reading with me in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, 
worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So here we see not only was Jesus confirmed as the Messiah by a spirit-filled prophet, but also by a prayerful prophetess. So who was this woman? We, we saw Simeon, who was uh, a, a prophet in the temple, and now we meet this woman who was uh, in, from the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. She was only married seven years before she became a widow. And this was a woman who had reason for sadness and mourning. That as a widow, she used her heartache for pursuing Christ. This is a picture of leveraging your life. I don't know your circumstances or what hardships face you, but one way we could look at that hardship is to say, why would God do this to me? Why me? Why would I suffer in this way? But the way that Anna looked at this was not to say, why would God do this to me, but how can I serve God in, in what God has given me? In my life, how can I serve God? And she did. She leveraged her life, even through, and, and especially through what God had given her in, in being a widow. She worshiped with fasting and prayer. She gave her life to ministry in the temple. Worshiping with fasting and prayer. She did not depart from the temple. Worshiping night and day. There's some image here for us, church, that the temple is no longer a place that we go, but now the temple is us. That God has made for himself a temple of flesh and blood. That he dwells within us. So now we don't have to go somewhere to be at the temple to worship, but that we worship as we go. So as she was doing it night and day, fasting and prayer, now should we not also regularly be in this rhythm of fasting and prayer, this communion with God it's a call for our lives to be a people who fast and pray. I mean, here's a pretty good New Year's resolution for you guys. I don't know how y'all feel about New Year's resolutions. It's a goal setting, however you want to look at it. It's nice to have these natural times of reset in our lives. January is an easy time for just reevaluating. Here, here we've got a week now as the new year approaches. What are we going to do with the time God's given us? Right? I mean, Maybe every week we're asking ourselves some of these reset questions. Maybe every month we're asking ourselves some of these reset questions. But why not here too? Sometimes we don't ask ourselves these questions just to be, I don't know, punk rock and say like, well, we're not going to do what everybody else is doing. <laughs> but, but why not use this time to say, God, I want to be following after you. Now, what can I do to follow after you well? What are you doing, one, to leverage your life for the glory of God? Where, where maybe are you suffering that you've been looking at that as, well, if God would just deliver me from that, then I could honor him. Maybe start looking at that as, how, is God giving you, how could God use that suffering in my life to honor him? Maybe you're thinking, I, have, I don't know that I could say that I've been fellowshipping with God, that I've had communion with God, that, that my relationship with him is deep and growing. I hear people talk about relationship with Christ. Anna's showing us the path towards that relationship. It's, it's being with him in prayer. It's being with him in studying the scriptures. What, what would that look like in your life to be someone who 
pursued Christ in specifically here, fasting and praying? Could you create a rhythm of skipping a meal or skipping a day of eating to commit yourself to prayer? That's really the heart of fasting. Our fasting is to say, God, you've given me a hunger for things in this world, food in this world, but God, I want to hunger for you even greater than that. And so you give yourself to prayer in the midst of those hunger pangs. I think that sometimes as Christians, we, we come up on these events in our lives where we realize we need God, right? Either, either good events or bad events, negative things. And we're like, God, we need you. And we turn to prayer in those moments. But wouldn't it be nice to be like Anna here where we've been continually fasting and praying? So as we come up on these events in our lives where we know we need prayer, we're not trying to reignite something that we haven't done in a while, <laughs> but that we're coming from this place of relationship and of pursuing Christ regularly. That is a beautiful way to be dwelling with Christ 